This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for August 5th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor, and a guest that we have with us today, Arnold Epstein, who's a health policy expert, Chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He's also served in various federal government roles, most recently as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services and head of the Office of Health Policy. Arnie is a primary care physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he's also for some time been an associate editor of the journal. Arnie, Lindsay, Eric, our podcasts to date have focused on COVID-19 itself, but there are plenty of other health problems going on, and all of them are being affected by the presence of this pandemic. This week, we published a study that gave us a chance to see how COVID-19 has affected healthcare in other areas during the height of the pandemic. What did this study tell us? Steve, the study you're referring to looked at out-of-hospital cardiac arrests early in the course of the outbreak in the Lombardy region of Italy, which was a region that was very heavily affected by COVID-19. And, and this studied the period from mid-February until the end of March, which was pretty much the height of the epidemic. The investigators looked at registry information for cardiac arrests that occurred during that period and compared the incidents from 2020 back to the same period in 2019. And then they looked at other registries to determine how much of a role COVID-19 played in each one of these events. And to do this, they looked for recent or concurrent COVID-19 testing in the patients who presented in cardiac arrests or recent reports of compatible symptoms. What they found is that there was a substantial increase in the number of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, up from about 229 in 2019 to 362 in this year, which represents an almost 60% increase. There were several other changes. Patients were more likely to have unwitnessed arrests in 2020 than in 2019, and less likely, therefore, to receive CPR. The cumulative incidence of cardiac arrests correlated strongly with the incidence of COVID-19. And of those who had cardiac arrest, 103 had known or suspected COVID-19. And that accounts for a substantial percentage of the total increase in cases, suggesting that a number of these patients had cardiac complications of their viral infections. So this is an example where COVID-19 is contributing to the burden of cardiac disease in the community. What about the opposite? How many people are missing out on care because of the lack of access to health care, which has been created by the pandemic? Well, I think this has been a huge issue, and it's entirely clear that not a lot of people are getting the care that they would ordinarily receive. It's difficult to determine what the numbers are behind that, but all the anecdotes point to a huge deficit in care. We published in June stories in a piece by Lisa Rosenbaum, which described several individuals who were either not receiving care or physicians who were not providing care that was really necessary, including cardiology patients who had essential services that were being deferred in the setting of acute illness, and a number of cancer patients who are opting for care that was not optimal because of either their concerns about COVID-19 or the lack of access to some of the services they would get ordinarily. And there are many, many factors contributing here. Some of it is 
simply that healthcare institutions weren't open for business because they were devoting their resources to the care of COVID-19 patients. And others are the patient's concerns about getting COVID-19 or the fact that they have to take public transportation to get to the hospital. And of course, this is all occurring in the face of financial crises, both for the hospitals and providers and for individuals. Eric, I think you're right on target with this. There's no question that the direct clinical impact of COVID-19 has been tremendous with more than 150,000 deaths in the U.S. alone. But that does not count the critical spillovers that have likely increased non-COVID deaths. As you point out, many patients were reluctant to risk using public transport or otherwise seek medical care in medical offices or hospitals where COVID-19 was likely to be present. Patients with chronic disease that benefit from close management, diabetes mellitus, congestive heart failure, COPD, and those with other such conditions went without monitoring or therapeutic adjustment that could have prevented important exacerbations. Patients with non-COVID illnesses treated as inpatients suffered shortfalls as well. Hospitals that were hard hit by high volumes of COVID-19 patients, often without adequate personal protective equipment, suffered from organizational stress that likely led to differences in the speed and efficiency with which care could be delivered for non-COVID conditions. Maybe some of the largest adverse impacts were in skilled nursing facilities. Here, COVID was a direct problem with more than 40% of COVID deaths in the U.S. coming from individuals residing in nursing homes. But in that setting, there is almost surely an uncounted toll among patients with non-COVID disease. In response to the pandemic, skilled nursing facilities imposed a number of measures to reduce the spread of COVID. This included closing the premises to all visitors, as well as eliminating communal dining and other activities. These measures impose a level of isolation and surely increase stress for long-term residents, especially those who are frail or cognitively impaired. To make matters worse, shortfalls in personal protective equipment and materials for testing impeded effective infection control by SNF staff. Staffing itself also emerged as a major vulnerability. Shortages of staff due to illness or abandonment have been severe enough to require intervention from the National Guard in SNFs across the country. Collectively, these changes mean that even in SNFs without a COVID-19 outbreak, long-term residents face an extreme level of stress and isolation from the usual social contacts in the healthcare system. Arnie, you bring up many different points there about some of the issues we have in a lot of our healthcare facilities. I wonder how much of this do you think points out pre-existing problems with some of these institutions. For example, you were talking about nursing homes and SNFs at the end, and some have pointed out that infection control has long been a problem in these areas. And I know, Lindsay, you've thought about this as well. Certainly, there's a literature of people complaining about skilled nursing facilities and not being up to snuff and doing all they can. And indeed, there's a mandate out from Medicare CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, that came out just yesterday with attempts to regulate skilled nursing facilities and provide a series of crutches that will help them perform better. I mean, I think it's important that we make a distinction between the direct complications of COVID and the indirect complications. And what I mean by that, Eric, is 
even though there were over 100 individuals in the study from Italy who had COVID with their cardiac arrest, I think we need to think carefully, is that due directly to COVID or are the circumstances such where COVID unmasks underlying illness and then impacts the nature, timing, quality of the care that they get in an urgent fashion? And I think that translates to these other arenas. Because if it's directly due to COVID, then blocking transmission and novel therapies that can treat COVID become very important. If it's indirectly due to COVID, then we can think about strengthening other services that can mitigate the complications, such as other care. And I suspect that the indirect effects may be even greater than the direct effects in terms of the morbidity we're seeing in skilled nursing facilities and other facilities. And like influenza, which can unmask cardiac susceptibility, I suspect COVID is as well, as well as other needs in the health sector. So I think the direct and indirect, at least in my mind, are different pathogenesis, and we have to think about the response differently. I think that's a really good distinction, Lindsay. I can't speak to whether the cardiac problems that are described in the study that Eric described are due to myocarditis in some way or a vasculitis in myocardial circulation. But I can tell you that we spend a lot of time as a healthcare system worried about the direct effects of COVID and very little information exists about the indirect effects of COVID. And you've got, in this case, skilled nursing facilities that were really drawn away from their primary mission. And I would be surprised if the mortality rates in those skilled nursing facilities for non-COVID disease were not higher. And the indirect effects are both in the acute complications, as you suggest, but I worry about the less acute, such as diabetes management, hypertension management, and even routine vaccinations, which are getting deferred widely. But we will not see those impacts for six months to a year or two or three as potentially measles or other transmissible infections may not be as well controlled due to delayed, deferred, or missed opportunities to do routine healthcare. Oh, and of course, among those vaccines is influenza. We're coming up on influenza season. And if people are missing out on their flu vaccines, we're going to have this very difficult situation where we have the concurrent epidemics of flu and COVID-19, which superficially resemble each other, and it's going to be very difficult to sort out. I have not seen any research that takes a a solid look at what the non-COVID death situation is in skilled nursing facilities. And I take your point that it may take a while for some of this to, to show up because it's chronic management, but these are very frail people. And I wouldn't be surprised if we look at the death rates during the heart of the first surge between early April and late May where they don't see a substantial increase in non-COVID mortality. I share your concern, Arnie, with 150,000 deaths in this country due to COVID that we know about. There's probably a substantial number we don't know about. And then all the indirect effects of COVID have not been systematically measured in any easily understandable way. And the impact of that is likely to be even larger than the direct effects of COVID. Yeah, and I think that there's very good evidence for this. If you count the number of excess deaths, they're larger than can be accounted for by the number attributable to COVID-19. Now, some of that is undiagnosed COVID-19, probably, 
but a large part of it is probably exactly what you're referring to, uh, Lindsay, effects on other healthcare. Looking at the flip side, you talked about some areas that are being strengthened as a result of the pandemic. And for primary care providers, telehealth has played a big role. How's this working? And what are the prospects that telehealth is going to continue to be important after the outbreak is under control? Telehealth has played a huge role in this pandemic. At the nadir in early April, visit rates to physicians were down to somewhere like 45 to 60% of where they had been. And at that point, we saw telehealth beginning to compensate, reducing the shortfall by somewhere between 15 percentage points and maybe half. Since then, overall visits have rebounded, although not back to the original length, and telehealth visits have declined somewhat. Because of the pandemic, Medicare in various states have liberalized the relations that govern and constrain telehealth. For example, right now, you don't have to have video. You can use a regular telephone for a telehealth visit. We're going to have to see what the policy landscape looks like when COVID finally clears. Arnie, in your own practice, have you been using telehealth? 